I am the connections pastor at the Well Boulder. And so like when Caleb was up here talking about, you know, like filling out your connect card and going to membership class and all that, he was like speaking my language. So you should definitely take advantage of those things because the last thing churches want is for um, people to show up and then just be like, I just couldn't connect with anyone. And then it's like, well, did you fill out the connect card? Did you go to anything? No? Okay, cool. So definitely take some time to fill those out. You will um, be glad and happy and excited that you did that. Um, uh, Pastor Caleb told me before I came here, I asked him, you know, is there anything specific that I should preach on? Are you in a series or anything like that? And he said, you know, we're kind of in between series, so you preach what you want. And so I'm excited to do that this morning. Today we're going we're gonna to go through 42 chapters of the Bible. <laughs> 42 chapters. I'm not joking, all right? We're going we're gonna to breeze through them. We'll move pretty fast, I promise. Uh, but I want to start out with a story. In 1968, a 14-year-old boy... Um, walked up to his Lutheran pastor with, an issue, with the latest issue of Life magazine. And on the cover of that Life magazine were two starving children from Nigeria. And he walks up to his pastor and he says this. He says, if I raise my finger right now, will God know which finger I'm going to raise before I even raise it? And the pastor says, well, of course, God, God knows everything. Of course, God would know that. So then he pulls out the issue of Life magazine, and he shows his pastor that picture, and he says, does God know about these children and what's going to happen to them? And the pastor said, well, God knows all things, so of course God knows that, and it's best that we don't ask questions like that. That little boy put the magazine down. He walked out of church that morning determined that he would never go to church again, and he wanted nothing to do with the Christian God. Um, maybe you've heard of this guy before. His name is Steve Jobs. He is the founder of Apple. Probably about half the people in this room own an Apple iPhone. I'm preaching from an iPad this morning. Um, but this is a story that as a, uh, someone who deals primarily with Gen Z, this is a story that I hear more and more frequently um, recently. People that are asking really hard questions about God and then they get frustrated maybe by the answers that they get. And they just end up walking away from the faith and say, I don't want, if that's God, I don't want anything to do with God. Um, th there are whole movements around this. And so when I was given the opportunity to talk about like whatever I wanted to talk about this morning, this is something I just feel like is so pressing that we just dive into and talk about a little bit this morning. If you follow Christian music, I grew up in church and so I was really into like Christian music. I was a youth pastor in Virginia, the East Coast. Everybody listens to like screamo music, and, uh, and, which is basically like very emotional music with a lot of screaming in it. And uh, so I, you know, that was very popular in the church I was in. And so all of the teens listened to it. And I've watched as I've followed some of these bands that I don't listen to too much unless I'm angry these days. Um, but I've watched some of these bands, so many of these bands where people have said, you know, I started asking really hard questions about God, and I didn't get the answers that I wanted, and then they just start walking away from the church, and it's just disappointing to see these people that so many people have looked up to for years, just walking away from church, and in my world, uh, being in a college town, I, I hear this journey all the time of college students, and so maybe you've heard of the term deconstruction, maybe you've heard the term exvangelical, this is like if you want to know what that's all about, you can just search the hashtag on like Twitter or Instagram, uh, TikTok. I mean, people talk about this all the time. Yeah, there's not a bat flying around this morning. It's just a wasp, a very annoying tiny wasp right in front of the light. But honestly, like it can feel a bit intense right now when we start talking about good and evil and where is God in the middle of this. And 
Most of us, though, I've found, and one of the things that I just like to share with people that are like, I don't know what's going on. There just feels like such, such an intense atmosphere that we're in as a church and as a people right now where we're just deconstructing, we're questioning everything about God because we can't find the answers to the hard questions in the Bible. Like, one of the things that I try to do to offer hope and encouragement is this. Like, hey, listen, people have been asking these questions for a long time. Like, when I was growing up, it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, the, the same stuff that it is today. Uh, deconstruction was not really a term that people used, but the same stuff about kind of rethinking church and rethinking the Bible has been going on for a really long time. At some point, most of us in our lives, we ask the question, if God is loving, why would he allow this to happen? Like most, of a, most of us ask that question. If God can stop this, then why didn't God stop this? If God is powerful enough to stop evil, then why doesn't God stop evil? Um, This has been going on for a long time. One of the oldest quotes about this you can actually find in uh, the works of Epicurus. In 300 BC, he asks this question. He says, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent or evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Why is there evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? This is 300 years before Christ. People are wrestling with this question. So if you haven't figured it out this morning, I said we're going through 42 chapters of the Bible. We're going to talk about the book of Job. And we're going to kind of give like a brief overview of that book, but we're really going to dive into a section of the book that I feel like a lot of people skip over when they're reading the book of Job. But it's a very important section in the book of Job. So the book of Job starts out pretty early on with God asking a question. He says this. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Job is the oldest book of the Bible, meaning, there we go, yes. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job is the oldest book of the Bible. So think about this for a second. I know when we think of the Bible, we think, where does the Bible start? The Bible starts in the book of Genesis. But Job is actually the earliest written book of the Bible. And I find that super interesting. Most scholars believe that Job would have been alive around the time of the patriarchs. So think about this. God is working on developing a people group through the line of Abraham. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then in a completely other part of the world, God is working in this guy, Job, who's alive at the same time. It shows us that God is a God that has a heart for the nations, that God is not um, just, uh, that it starts with a people group, but God wants to spread that to the nations. He shows his concern for the other nations here. And what I find most interesting is that when you look at the order in which the books of the Bible were written, if Job is the first book of the Bible written, then the first book of the Bible ever written deals with the questions that we're asking today. The earliest book of the Bible asks this question, where is God when everything in my life falls apart? Where is God in human suffering? So the next time you think, you know, or the next time you see someone on social media deconstructing and they say, you know, I just started asking hard questions and people just don't ask this question in the church. It's literally the oldest book of the Bible. (laughs) People have been asking this question for a really, really long time. Okay, with that said, we're going to jump into the story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly breeze through a couple sections of Job, just to kind of give you some context of where we're going to land this morning. But Job opens with a scene in the throne room of God. And Satan shows up on the scene, 
and he tells God that he's been roaming the earth. And God says to him, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And what Satan does is he tells God, he says, listen, the only reason Job serves you, and the only reason God, the only reason he is this way is because of how blessed he is. But the minute you remove the blessing from him, just watch as he turns his back on you. This is kind of the argument that's going on in heaven. And so God says, okay, let's see. So Satan says, give me permission to go and mess with Job, and then we'll see if Job will continue to worship you. And so Job, on just any, just on a, a random day, just starts out as a normal day. And we all have days like this, where our days just start out normal, and then we get a phone call, and it's just terrible, Right? Terrible news. This is what happens to Job. When you read this story, um, someone comes up and tells him, hey, there was a fire and it burned all of your life, or all of your like livelihood, all of your crops. Oh, and, if, and then as one servant is telling this, someone else comes in and says, oh, and all of your like livestock are dead. And then someone else comes in and says, hey, not only is your livestock dead, but your family is dead. Your children are dead. And then shortly thereafter, Job loses his health and he's covered in um, skin disease. It's just a terrible thing, one after the other, all within a matter of hours. It's safe to say that as bad of a day as you may have had in your life, chances are you haven't had as bad of a day as Job, at least not all at once. Maybe you've had seasons of your life that felt like that, but this all happens to Job within a matter of hours. And then on top of that, the one person in his family who's left living is his wife, so, you know, at least I've got her, and she can comfort me and console me, and we can be in this together. And his wife's like, you should just curse God and die. Like, thanks for the encouragement, hon. I appreciate this. Like, that, that's what he's got. Then his friends come to him, and they start giving the worst advice ever. Job, have you considered that God's doing this to you as punishment? Which is not what anybody wants to hear when their life is falling apart. That's what his friends start telling him. They, they leave, and then Job is left alone in his thoughts, and he's left alone in his feelings, and he starts doing what most of us would do in this situation. And what many of us have done at some point in our lives, he starts calling out God, calling him into the courtroom, telling him, you've not treated me fairly. This is terrible. Are you, how can you be good and loving and operate like this in my life? Uh, Job chapter 30, verse 20 says this, he says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. Then he goes on, and in chapter 31, he continues his complaints against God, and he tells God, he says, I have not sinned. I have not sinned sexually. I have not sinned uh, by taking advantage of other people. I'm an upright person. I'm a good person. Why are you treating me this way? And then in Job chapter 31, he asks what I would consider the key question of Job. And here's the thing. If you've read Job before, chances are, or if you've heard it taught before, chances are you're fairly familiar with like the beginning of the story and Job losing everything. And then you get to the point where his wife tells him to curse God and die. And his response is, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked will I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it ends with this famous line of, in all of this, Job did not sin. And then we skip to the very end of the book. And we start talking about how God restored everything, and we kind of ignore this section of the book, which is, what I would argue, one of the most important sections of 
scripture and one of the most important sections of the book of Job. Job says this in Job chapter 31, verse 5. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Uh, The word one to hear me here is the Hebrew word for judge. So he's painting a courtroom scene here, and he's saying, I wish I had a judge to come and arbitrate between me and God. I wish someone would come and listen to me. And then he goes as far as to say, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. This is, in the ancient Near East, how you would sue somebody. This is how you would bring someone to court. You would sign a paper and say, I need a judge to hear my case. And so Job is making a case against God here and saying, God needs to show up and answer for himself. God needs to sit before a judge and be judged on his behavior. He says this, he says, Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. And so what Job is doing is he's telling God here, he's saying, you've been unfair and I wish I could take you to court over it. How many of us have felt that way at some point in our lives? How many of us have met people that have felt somewhere, some way like that? And I love this because the oldest book of the Bible shows us that, you know, like we're going to see the response here in a minute. God's okay. Like he's, he's not on an ego trip. And when Job comes to him and tells him, I feel like I've been treated unfairly, like God is not self-conscious. He's not worried about Job's doubts. And I love that. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is filled with the doubts of David and all of his struggles, and the things that he's wrestling with. God is not self-conscious. He's not worried about it. And these are questions that I think many of us, we feel afraid to ask. These are questions that I think many of us, we feel afraid to tell other people that we're wrestling with because we're afraid of how people will perceive us if we have doubts about the goodness of God, if we have worries. But listen, I'm I'm here to tell you this morning that Job is going to show us that God can handle our fears. God can handle our worries. God can handle our doubts. And so what Job does for the next several chapters is he's going to lay out all of his anger and frustration at God. And then in Job chapter 38, God is going to show up on the scene. And the way this goes down is really interesting because Job has painted this whole courtroom scene and said, I want God to show up and answer for himself. And then to his surprise, God does. God shows up, and he doesn't bring a lawyer with him to defend himself in the courtroom. He actually shows up as the defense attorney, and it's like, I'd like to cross-examine the witness. And he starts cross-examining Job, and he's like, you've been asking me a lot of questions, Job. It's my turn. Let me ask you some questions. Uh, Look at Job chapter 38. Um, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Can you imagine how terrifying this must have been for Job? You're just sitting there pouring out all of your complaints before God, and then a whirlwind shows up, and in it, the voice of God says, My turn. You've been asking me a lot of questions. Who is this guy? Who is this guy who's sitting here asking questions of me? Let me ask you some questions myself. And then God starts asking the questions. And these are the type of questions that God asks. Hold on, we're still here. Okay. He says this. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? 
or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. In other words, he says, hey, Job, remind me again where you were when I made the laws of nature. Remind me where you were when I created the earth. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Basically, what he asks Job is this. He says, hey, Job, do you understand everything? Do you understand the mysteries of the universe? Do you understand the laws of nature? Do you understand how you got here? Do you understand how the world works? Then God asks more questions in Job chapter 40, verse uh, 7 through 14. He says this. He says, dress for action like a man. Again, he says, hey, you want to come at me? Man to man, let's go. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. And he goes on and says, then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save. So he starts out by saying, hey, where were you when I did all this stuff? And then his next line of questioning before Job is this. Hey, Job, are you God? Can you stop evil? You know, you're not the only one in this world with a lot of problems. Can you stop all of the other problems in the world with just a snap of your finger? Can you do that? In other words, what he's telling Job is this. He's saying, Job, here's, here's part of the problem. You are laying out rules that you expect me to follow. But I am the rule giver. I am the sovereign one. I am the creator. I'm the one who makes the rules here. And listen, Christian or non-Christian in the room, I just want to tell you, like, there is nothing more frustrating than setting out rules for God and then being disappointed when he doesn't follow your rules, when he doesn't do what you think that he should do. And this is where Job is. And I find it interesting here that God continues this for a few chapters, and he never once tells Job, hey, Job, let me tell you what was going on up in heaven with Satan and I. Let me, let me kind of explain the backdrop of all of this. Like, God never answers Job. He never says, this is why I allowed this to happen to you. Here's what I was doing. Here's why you suffered. He never answers Job. And here's why. Here's why I believe this is such an important thing. Because most of us in our lives, I would argue every single one of us in our lives will go through terrible things and we won't ever know why in this life. We won't have the understanding of the behind the scenes of why God is working. And what this does for us is it shows us that Job's suffering is a representation not just of his own suffering, but it's a representation of all human suffering. Job is this idea that all of us experience stuff like this. And God doesn't give us answers all the time in this lifetime. As a matter of fact, if, if God were to spell out to Job exactly what's happening and then give Job all of the answers, and this was written down in the story, 
Job found out exactly why this was going on. He and God were good, happily ever after. What would happen is this, we would read Job, and Job would just be a story of one man suffering and how much that sucked for him. And we wouldn't be able to relate to it at all because Job got all the answers. And in our own lives, we don't get all the answers all the time. We don't always know why we suffer. We don't always know why we're going through the things that we're going through. But by the time God is done speaking, here's what we know. We know that Job has learned some important lessons about God. And I think they're important lessons for all of us. After all that he went through, he learned some things. He learned, first off, that God never left the throne. God was still in control. He was still the creator and the sustainer. He learned that God never left him when God shows up and starts speaking. He learned that God's intentions towards him were not evil. He learned that God was still in control when everything in his life seemed to point to the opposite. And it's after Job sees this that God restores the fortunes of Job. And it actually says that he gave Job twice as much as what he had before. And I know what you're thinking when I, when I tell you that, you know, God shows up and starts asking the questions and then Job is like, okay, we're good. And then God restores his fortunes. That, that very easily feels like a cop-out, right? Like, okay, that's a cop-out right there. Like, I totally get that. Job lost everything. And that really, from a human perspective, doesn't seem fair. Um, this doesn't help, maybe, with the tensions that I feel about God in my own life and God's goodness in the world. You know, I've heard people say, you know, Job wouldn't need double of everything if he didn't lose the stuff in the first place, right? Like, I've heard stuff like this, but, and let me tell you, I get it, but we have to understand that Job's story was included in the Bible for the reason, and I think the, one of the most important things we can walk away with here is that may be your perspective, but the person this happened to, that was not his perspective. <laughs> that was not Job's perspective of why this stuff happened to him, and that matters a lot more than you think. Let me tell you why. Husbands in the room, if you go home from church today, and you're like, oh, you know what? I am, I, you know what I'm really craving, honey? I'm craving pizza today. And your wife is like, okay, cool. That sounds great. I'll make pizza. And you like go in the living room and you're like, oh man, I'm so excited about this. And then she's like, okay, lunch is ready. And you walk in and there's a big plate with hamburgers on it. You're going to be like, was there like a miscommunication here? Like what happened? Why, why did you make pizza? Or why did you make hamburgers when I asked for pizza? Why? Because when you say something, there's an intention behind what you say, right? And what happens in kind of this age of deconstruction is we want to take the Bible and we want to look at it and we want to take out all authorial intent and we want to just make the story about us. We want to make the story about what we think about this situation, about what we think should have happened in this situation. And we just kind of get rid of the intention for why it was written. But that doesn't work in the real world. Like words do mean something. And in the deconstruction movement, when we try to take words meaning away from it, uh, we end up losing the intent and we lose like the importance of why this was written. And so we can't just say like, okay, well, that's not good enough for me because the authorial intent here is to say, hey, listen, God gives us what we need. He gives us the answers. And, and here's the deal. What, what Job doesn't ever do here is he say, doesn't say, God, that wasn't good enough. God, you didn't give me the answers that I needed. What he's actually learning here is something that I think is really important, and that's this. He's learning that there are things that are more important than theological and intellectual reasons for suffering. There are things more important than that. Faith. Faith in God and his goodness is more important. 
And this is Job's response. He says in Job chapter 42, verse 3, after God talks to him, he says this. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things that are too wonderful for me. And then he goes on in verse 5, and he says, oh, sorry. He goes on in verse 5 and says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And that was enough for him. See, Job did not respond to God's answer as, God, that's not good enough. We actually see this most in what happens next. Not only does God restore the fortunes of Job, um, it ends kind of with like this obscure, like, okay, and Job had a lot of kids, and three of his kids were named this. Now, why why would this be included? Because the names of these kids give us a lot of insight into how Job perceived his suffering and how he perceived God in the middle of that. So verse 14 says this, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second daughter, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that, but it doesn't matter. So let's talk about what these names mean. He, he names his first daughter, Jemima. Jemima means a bird for sacrifice. So when we think of sacrifice, what do we mean by that? We mean giving up something you love for something greater. So Job's perspective is, you know what? I lost a lot that I loved. But at the end of my life, I can look back and say that God has been so much more good to me than I gave him credit for. I gave up something I love, but I received something greater in return. And that doesn't mean that the restoration from God undid his loss, undid his pain. But what it did was it taught him to teach, or it taught him about God. He got to see God in the middle of his suffering in a way that many of us will never experience. Listen, there are things you can only learn about God when you lean into him in your suffering. Listen, I'm telling you from experience. I have experienced pain and suffering in my life. I've experienced times of complete silence from God where I'm like, what are you doing? Where are you in my life? I need nothing more than to hear from you. And I've been met with silence. And it's actually in those moments that I look back. It's like, no, God was right there. God was with me. And I had an intimacy with God like I have not experienced in my life prior to that. And this is something that you look back on. And this is what, what Job got to see. He got to see God when he revealed himself as great and mighty and powerful and incomprehensible and in all of those questions. And yet, a God that was caring enough to answer him and commune with him, and talk to him, and a God that was faithful to restore. That's the view of God that Job walked away with in the middle of his suffering. And at some point, most of us will be left with a choice. When we go through suffering, am I going to trust God? Am I going to experience intimacy with God? Am I going to lean into the God who's willing to answer, the God who's willing to commune with me, or am I going to walk away? Because it would have been just as easy for Job to make that decision, and that's not what he did. And because of that, he got to see God as a God that steps into his circumstances. He names his second daughter Keziah, which means polished and refined. So through the pain, Job realized that it was a refining pain, that he was polished through this situation. And what this does is it actually makes Job's story beautiful. And this is the experience of every follower of Jesus, every Christian, is that God refines us And God works in us through Christ. 
See, struggle is painful and struggle is real and hardships are ultimately, though, what make us who we are. Like, nobody reads a story like, once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess and there was a prince and they met each other and they fell in love and they lived happily ever after. That's a boring story when you read it. What is it that makes the good story? It's all of the struggles before the happily ever after and the things that they overcame. And this is, the reason these stories are so powerful is because they are the story of humanity. We all experience pain. We all experience suffering. And it's the suffering and the struggles that make us who we are. And I find it super interesting that when you actually talk to like psychologists and people that study humanity, one of the things that is a pretty common school of thought is that it's actually your pain in childhood that gives you your personality. Like the things that make you who you are, a lot of that is your response to pain, your response to trauma, your response to some of the negative things that you experience as a kid that make you who you are today. And this isn't just like the cynical side of you that it made you or whatever. Like these are your gifts. These are the things that you're really good at. For those of you that are like entrepreneurs and you're incredible at starting things, like a lot of that can be traced back to hardships that you experienced as a child. If you look at these stories of these people that came from nothing, and then all of a sudden they're some of the, the most influential people on the planet later, or basketball stars or sports stars, like a lot of times you see the struggle when they were a child, and you see this pain that they experienced, and then all of a sudden that is a motivator for them and the person that they became. This is what psychologists say is true of like all of us. And so if you think about it, it's like God redeeming our pain to make us who we are, and all of the things that make us great and incredible, and all of the things that that the people look at as your talents and your giftings and your skill, they come from a God, God redeeming your pain, to make you who you are. And it doesn't mean that we as Christians long for suffering. It doesn't mean we're some like weird masochists that just enjoy pain. Like that's, that's not what Job is talking about here. What it is, is it's understanding that our pain and our suffering is a refining process in our lives. And that's one of the things that Job is expressing here in the naming of his children, of what he learned in this process. And then his final daughter, he names Karen Hapak. The beautifier is what that means. The beautifier. This is Job's way of saying that God has taken my mess, God has taken my suffering, and he has turned it into something beautiful. And it's important to see what God did. God restored the fortunes of Job, but he didn't just restore it, he doubled it. Why is that important? Well, because in those days, it was a tradition in the ancient Near East, if you were wronged by someone, you would restore double what was taken from them. So what God is actually doing here is he's actually honoring Job by giving him double. Now, God is not the one that wronged Job. Satan is the one who went in and destroyed Job's life. But what God is doing is he's actually acknowledging the pain and the suffering that Job went through, and he's restoring double. And he's saying, I understand that what you went through was unfair. I understand that what you went through was hard. Like, I get it. And I know we all have, and what he's basically saying is this situation in your life that you endured, I'm not even going to waste that. I'm going to restore it, and I'm going to restore double. And I know that all of us have points in our lives where we feel like maybe some of the stuff in our lives feels unfair. 
which honestly, like from a theological perspective, if you understand sin, really nothing's unfair. But the fact that we have grace in the middle of that is pretty amazing. But we have moments where we feel like my faith in God was wasted. Like this period of my life felt like a very wasted period. This suffering in my life felt very wasted. Where it seems like maybe God is out of control, where it feels like maybe God is nowhere to be found, or maybe God is not good if he is in control. But this is not how Job perceived it. Job reminds us as we read this story that God is a God that steps into our suffering, that God steps in and answers to remind us that he is in control, to remind us that he is still good, to restore us, to refine us so that our suffering is not wasted. He is a God that makes beauty out of the brokenness that we find ourselves in. And I read a book uh, a few months ago they were super helpful for me as a former church planner. It's actually a book made for current church planners, but I read it as a former one, which was just so helpful for me. Uh, it's a book by a pastor named Tom Bernardo, and in it, the author talks about trials that um, specifically church planners go through, but he connects this to everybody. It says everybody experiences these times in our life, and he calls this chapter Our Weakening and God's Silence. And let me just read a quote from it that I think was helpful for me as I process the pain in my own life. He says this, he says, only in the agony of his absence, for in real absence of certain blessings and in felt absence of his presence, we relax our determined grasp of our empty selves enough to appreciate his purposes. We're stripped of that which defined us, forced to scrounge for something other than our own inherent gifts and resources to validate our worth, And while we flounder, we watch as God still accomplishes his purposes independent of our contributions, unfazed by our impotence. And in the course of time, we hear him whisper that his love for us and value of us have continued uninterrupted. We are highly favored cherished beyond comprehension, and still invited to participate in what he alone is effectuating in our world. Ultimately, as Christians, we see this in Jesus. We see God as a God that steps into our situation in the sense that God himself took on flesh and stepped into humanity to solve the biggest problem in this world, which is sin. He stepped in. He gave of himself. He sacrificed his life on the cross through his death, his burial, and his resurrection to redeem and restore all things to himself, to take the mess that is humanity, to take the mess that is our sinfulness, and to deal with it once and for all. He shows us who he is in Jesus. And so in Job, we get a small glimpse of a God who steps into our pain, who steps into the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of the world. And then in Jesus, we see the ultimate example of this. He steps in and he makes the beauty out of the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of our lives. In the end, God is a God that is faithful to restore Now, this is not a prosperity gospel name and claim what's coming to you. It's nothing like that. This is trust that God is good, that God has not abandoned you, that I'm not going to walk away when things get hard. Instead, I'm going to lean in, and I'm going to look back on this season of my life knowing that God is good and that God is in control. And even if I never have answers in this lifetime, I know that I will see God face to face, 
and I know that I can put my hope and my trust in Jesus. Because the beautiful thing is this. Job had to accept what he couldn't see. But we have a cross and an empty tomb that we can look at and be reminded that no matter how bad it gets, God has not abandoned us. God has not forgotten us. That God loves us and he loved us so much that he made a way for us to step out of the brokenness and into healing and into relationship with him. It's through the cross and the empty tomb that we see that God is working to make all things new. That God is working to restore just like he did with Job. He's working to restore not just Job's life, though. He is working to restore all of creation through what he accomplished on the cross. And the invitation for us as Christians is to continue to trust him. And when the temptation is to walk away and feel like God has forgotten me, is to lean into the cross and to lean into the empty tomb and be reminded of how good God is. For those of us who are not Christians in the room, this is an opportunity to lean in and say, you know what, I don't have all of the answers but I am persuaded that God is good. And I'm gonna put my trust and my hope and my faith in Jesus for the first time. One of the ways that we exercise trust and faith in Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross is by coming to the table together as a church and taking communion and being reminded of how good God is. And so, so what I wanna invite you to do as, um, as we continue our time of worship here for the next few minutes, I want to invite you as you take the elements and as you take the bread to be reminded of the body of Christ that was broken for you to heal your suffering. I want to invite you to take the juice and be reminded of the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. This broken body and shed blood on the cross. All to say, you know what? I love you. I see the pain of humanity. I'm not distant from it. I'm stepping into it. I am the beautifier. I will step in and I will take your brokenness and I will make it beautiful. I will take your pain. I will give it purpose if you are found in my son, Jesus. And so let's remember and let's celebrate that together as a church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for just this reminder of who you are. Thank you for this reminder in Job that you are good, that you love us, that you are not a God that is distant from us, even in our suffering. Help us to take on the perspective of Job this morning and to lean into you. To not be afraid to come to you with our doubts and our fears and our frustrations and our anger, but then to be willing to listen as you respond, as you minister to our hearts, as you show us over time, as we lean into you and we stay faithful that you are good, that you step into our situation and you ultimately provide it a way to deal not only with our personal brokenness, but with the brokenness of all of creation through your son, Jesus. And we thank you for Jesus and we celebrate the life that we have in him this morning by faith. In your name I pray, amen.